Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book has a unique title. It's titled In Betweenness, A Meditative Approach to Everyday Life. And joining me from California is author Jim Kidd, and he co-authored this with his late wife, Sonny D. Kidd. Welcome to the program, Jim. Thank you, sir. This is uh, an extensive read, isn't it? Uh, what a, uh, Almost 200 pages. Uh, your wife uh, came up with this term, in-betweenness, several years ago. In fact, I think she was a child at the time. Is that uh, my understanding? Yes, sir, it is. Um, what, what happened is she lived in the country, um, and she was uh, only uh, she was uh, lived alone a lot, you know. And her parents worked, and she would be out in the field there. And one day, a hawk came by, and you know, it landed, and it was hurt. And she took the hawk up and whatever, and tried to fix its wing. And then she took it in the house. The mama came home. Her mama came home and said, and got all freaked out because you know this hawk. And then. Hmm. So what happened is, Sonny, uh, that experience, that direct experience with this hawk, when the hawk came back years later and died in her arms, had an impact on her where she felt spiritually connected. Hmm. And so the thing is, it's like uh, she always remembered that experience. And then in 1970, when she was older, you know, in her 20s, she came up with a term in between this and how she described it was really cool because she says, cause I told her, I says, it's, this term is difficult. And she said, Oh no, it isn't because she said, you know, look at the, like two hearts carved on a tree mm-hmm. where they come together, where they actually come together. That's in between this. And that's actually the spiritual connectedness. And she says, basically, uh, what I do is I call it, uh, you know, uh, in between us, and in between us, it's a, a spiritual dimension where everything is connected to everything else, and it's inclusive. So she says, I I found this in my own direct experience, and then when I came to realize, if I take it to the wider horizon, you know, the galaxy, then the universe, mm. and then all the way to the cosmos. And I, I, she says that's where in-betweenness is the connectedness all the way to the cosmos. And that's like uh, what she wanted to call an absolute. But here on in Earth with us now, time and space, that is like a field of in-betweenness because things are about objects and we understand, but the origination is the spirituality Spiritual that is the cosmos. Mm. And so the thing is, it's like what she came up with is like, okay, we're not negating religions. She says, you know, the thing is, it's like all religions look to the beyond, to the spiritual. And she says, especially the theologians do that. They, and they, they, they look to the spiritual, and then they come back, so to speak, in time and space, and they write out the particular religion. And it's their interpretation of that which was originally seen. Right. And what was originally seen is the spirituality. And then she says, and that's fine, that's their interpretation of that. But all religions do that. And each religion is a path climbing up to the top of the mountain, so to speak. Each is a view. But Mm. the thing is, is the connectedness of it all is the spirituality, which they are all basically looking at in the beginning. And what she said is that religions need to quit separating themselves. People need to quit separating themselves because we're all connected. And it goes beyond Buddhism, where Buddhism says everything is connected mm-hmm. to everything else. And if I hurt you, I hurt myself. Right. Well, of course, all of that's great. But the problem with Buddhism is they don't acknowledge an absolute. Well, that's true. Probably because an absolute. Yeah, I know. And probably because an absolute actually cannot be described. Mm. 
So how she did what she did in the book, she says, you know, you can see in between this by what it engenders, by what it occurs. Like you cannot see the wind. You cannot see the pine trees along the coast in California that are bent way over because of the wind. You can see that, but you can't see the wind, but you can see the effect of that. That's true. And so, yeah, I know. It's like, actually, I got to live with with her, to tell you the truth. We had a (laughs) resonantial harmony that uh, we lived, and she was so much into the idea of reflection. Yes. Reflection, which is the intuitive and reflective is the cognitive. So the idea with the book is she wanted to see someone reading the book, you know, on the trolley, you know, just sort of like reading it in sort of a meditative way and put it down a little bit and then and then reflect later. See, when you're meditating, you don't say, gee, I'm right, meditating isn't this good. Uh-huh. You just meditate and then you come out feeling good and then you think about it. So reflection is reflecting on something and reflection is reflecting on the direct experience and she had a direct experience with the idea that there is an absolute when it comes to in betweenness well that's a that's a fascinating uh, you know concept you have um, you spent you mentioned to me i think it was 40 years kind of assembling the the basic concepts of your book and uh, uh putting it to paper uh, you have a, a background as a college professor has this book been completed for a few years or or is it just recently been completed after you've done some editing oh it's amazing how this came about Actually, in uh, 1970, she wrote the first 10 chapters, and we went over and over and over and over in them. In the 90s, uh, I was presenting a paper with her in the Sorbonne uh, in Paris, and we met uh, uh, Margaret Chatterjee, which was a, a famous philosopher, uh, the most famous one in India at the time, and she was in charge of uh, international uh, metaphysics conferences. Mm. And we talked with her, and Sunny, after talking with her and seeing her view of how she saw in between us, Margaret Chatterjee said, you need to write some more chapters on this. Uh-huh. So Sunny then made another outline while we were in Paris and started writing even then. (laughs) And she did the last 10 chapters, which were completed in the 90s. Okay. So then then we sent, started sending it out to people, and we sent it to Ramakrishna Pula Gondola, which is, he's a physicist. Yes. And a philosopher, very famous. And Sonny, you know, met him at a Vedanta conference. And, you know, they just like really hit it off. And he's been helping us for years. And he wrote the introduction to the book. So we kind of knew then, well, okay, this is okay. But you see, we presented a paper in between us, the indivisible whole, in a Vedanta conference. And Rama was there. Uh, Sadarshan was there, another physicist. Um, a, a lot of the big scholars and when we presented that theoretical system we knew this was going to work pretty well because see you what you need to do is if you're going to bring in a new philosophy i like what john dunn says yes uh and new philosophy calls all in doubt the element of fire is quite put out so but the thing is is when you bring it in a new philosophy you have to make sure that your peers, the philosophers, the physicists, come to understand this is what it is, and it works, you see, because like in philosophy, uh, in between us, is, they can see it because that's what they call entanglement. Entanglement. And, hmm. Yeah, entanglement. And uh, in, in uh, a lot of these disciplines, they talk about inner subjectivity, Yes. Well, that's what how phenomenists, phenomenologists would see it. So the thing is, is after she talked with these people and and we presented this paper, we knew this was the way to go on this text. But I can tell you, it's been uh, 
a long haul because I spent so many years all the time after she passed going over and over and over the text Mm. to the point where, you know, what people got to understand when they read this is, you know, there's, there's a lot of philosophical depth in this because, you know, I'm a philosopher. Yes. And the thing is, it's like they, they want to read stuff now. Okay, read. Uh, how do I do this? Tell me exactly what to do, and that's it. I don't want to hear nothing. Right. Well, the idea is you read the book a little bit. Just read a little bit, and then later you think about it, and stuff will come together where you will come to understand the connectedness of it all and how you treat people and how you are, and it brings out the kindness in you, and it's like – and then we we got to understand that we need to quit hurting people. It's like because we're all connected, yes. and all of that comes with it, you know. We, and, yeah. But see, life is like moving on a path. And then see if you go back to her original thing about the hearts. This just blew my mind how she came up with this. She says, "Okay, you look at the hearts, Jimmy." She called me Jimmy all the time. <laughs> she says, "You look at the hearts, Jimmy. You know they're nothing but movement and vibration." Hmm. And that's the spiritual connection. Even in physics, they talk about movement and vibration. And that's what in between us is. It's a constant movement and vibration. So then she assigned me, she says, okay, now I want you to work it out in the metaphysical, the epistemological, and the axiological assumptions. Hmm. So I said, that's, okay, Sonny, I'll do it. That sounds so like that sounds like a, 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 a yeah, major assignment. That 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 sounds kind of complicated. Now yeah. you you mentioned meta- yeah, yeah metaphors. <laughs> metaphors is one of the things that you mentioned in your book, and one of them was a, a scene in Paris at near the Champs d'Elysees. My wife and I have visited there and think it's a beautiful city. What is the significance of that uh, metaphor that uh, that Paris itself, the city of lights, uh, indicated to your wife and to you? Oh, it, it just did everything for us because, like, we presented papers at the National Bibliotheque. We presented papers at the Sorbonne, which is University of Paris, and all of that. And she was so intrigued with the Champs-Élysées uh, because of the idea of the arc. We actually climbed up on the arc, and, you know, there's really? five avenues you can look at. Mm-hmm. She says, now, look at this. You see? Down there is all the activity of the experiential going on, and here we are up here, and we we, we see the unity of it all. Mm-hmm. And she says, this is so special, the ark. You know, the ark is very famous, and it's like every time we went to Paris, like about eight times, she says, I have to go to, to the ark. Yes. But, yeah, Paris is like uh, the city of love, and she says the hearts, you know, and that's where she met. Margaret Chatterjee, that's where we met a bunch of other philosophers that we ran the idea by, and it's just, I mean, it's so special. I mean, Paris is just, uh, you know, they, like they say, the city of love. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful, 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 I was going to say town, but it's a beautiful city. The book itself, uh, you know, almost 200 pages, is this going to be complicated for most readers to understand, or is this uh, something they should just read a few pages and kind of sit and think about? Uh, how would you describe the best way to approach this? The best way to approach it is this. Each chapter has a lot of depth in it, and there's a lot behind it. And the thing is, is it's all written in everyday language. But the best thing to do is to just only focus on one chapter at a time, read the chapter through, you know, just just read it through without thinking of anything in particular, and just keep going because you don't you don't understand something by reading a little bit and then you know that's like the part it's like mm. reading half of a sentence you need to read the whole sentence you need to read the whole par- the whole paragraph you need to read the whole chapter and then you get the wholeness otherwise you look at it in parts so the best thing to do would be to just read through one, the like the first chapter and then put the book down and and, and wait a few days you know it's like because I can tell you this has so much depth in it that some people will read it and they'll go, oh, yeah, it goes all over the place. Well, you have to reflect on it. This is it's a meditative approach to get you to reflect on life itself. And people don't do that. They rush about at this fast pace and they don't understand that 
you know, like she gives an example about being in an airplane. You fly in the airplane. Okay, fine. But you don't really know you're in the airplane or whatever till you get outside to see from the outside that you were in the airplane. Mm-hmm. You know, and some people go, well, that don't make sense. Well, it does too <laughs> because you're going through the experience. But when you reflect on it, then you see it in a different light. But you see, basically, with all of this, she was into the idea of reflection, R-E-F-L-E-X-I-O-N. Mm-hmm. That's intuitive. Okay. And the Vedantins will say, the Vedantins will tell you, you know, there's a, uh, an everyday mind and there's the cosmic mind. Right. The everyday mind is, is the reflex, uh, re, re, reflecting, but the, but the, the, Cosmic mind, Brahman and whatever, that would be reflection with an X. With an X in it. Reflect, hmm. Reflective. And see, basically, even in phenomenology, uh, and we wrote a whole methodology on this uh, that people were getting PhDs using. But the thing is, is there's two things that go on with consciousness. When you immediately see something, you immediately come to understanding its direct experience. That is reflection, R-E-F-L-E-X-I-O-N. When you reflect on it, you're reflecting on that which was originally seen, which is your direct experience. So, see, when you reflect, it's that's a separation, between, and, and then it creates a subject and an object. But when you first look at something in all pristine clarity, when you see it, it's like you know something. Just like the Indians say, that which is known is known it doesn't it's not verified by the cognitive and what happens with the cognitive is you're looking at it in a different way you know the thinking you're 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 thinking through whatever i came up with an article to explain this because people get confused and i wrote an article and i showed an umbrella the overall image of the umbrella the overall outside is the wholeness in the bottom you see the like it goes from this one to that one to this one to that one. It's like little little jumps, you know, like yes. at the outside of the uh, umbrella. And that's the cognitive. When you think about something, you think about something that happened. You don't just think in a pure sense. You think on something. That means something is prior to the thinking. And thinking stops, so to speak, the flow of everything. But with intuition... With the wholeness, it's an ongoing flow. And that's the way in-betweenness is because it's like it's ongoing. You right. can't stop it. It's like it's, it's, it's the spiritual ongoingness of it all. It's the connection of it all. Well, Jim, this book could be, uh, I guess, titled The Umbrella of In-Betweenness that you have penned, <laughs> uh, Meditative Approach <laughs> to Everyday Life, and uh, co-authored by Sunny, S-U-N-N-I-E, D, and middle initial, Kid, K-I-D-D, and uh, spouse, Kim, uh, Jim Kid, Jim, uh, work, they will also be able to get, an, uh, I guess, to see an excerpt of this book if they are curious, and uh, where can they find a copy of this book? Oh, uh, Exuberus has it, um, and they have it in Amazon and uh, and uh, Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble, yes, they can they can go online and do a search under your name, uh, Jim Kid K I D D, or under the name of the book, which I don't think there's anybody else there has a book by this title. In between this, all one word, and uh, when they do that, they'll they'll locate the book and probably be able to see an uh, an excerpt from the book and get an idea of how you write and uh, some of the content. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. I appreciate it. You're you're very helpful in having me bring things out. You know, I appreciate the way you do the interview very much. Well, honored to visit with you and have a great afternoon in California. In between this, a meditative approach to everyday life. For Ex Libris on Air, this is Jay Douglas Parker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. 
All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff. And find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Crossroads, The Conflicted Journey of a New Jersey State Trooper. And joining me from phone uh, on the phone from New Jersey is author Dr. Vincent Lucas Martin. Dr. Martin, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you very much for having me. This is a, I would say a complicated book. It's 300 pages, but it goes into uh, your actual history as a, as a New Jersey state trooper. That's a very uh, complicated and difficult career to follow. But in addition to that, you have uh, entered into education as a professor, a tenured professor, and also um, an author. Uh, which of those is the most fun? Fun. Well, I, I can say being. <laughs> and- a New Jersey State Trooper was fun for about 18 years. Being a university professor has been fun since 1999, since I started. And being an author is awesome. It is awesome. And it is awesome that you have the courage, the energy, and the uh, drive to produce a book of 300 pages in length. It is not all glossed over fun and games, though. As a New Jersey trooper, uh, you uh, share some of the difficult parts of becoming a trooper. In fact, uh, one of the first scenes that you share in your book is uh, going to what I'd call is uh, going to camp, uh, getting started. Share a little of that story. Well, for a young man coming from the inner city, really having no contact with the outside world, I was plunged into a scenario where I had to grow up real quick and understand, I guess, the bigger picture in life. I was at the academy with approximately 250 other classmates, which was ultimately dwindled down to 131 of us that actually graduated. And during the 26 weeks that we are at the academy, we were confronted with a lot of harsh scenarios to get rid of those that the state police did not deem worthy of being, or excuse me, or deem worthy of wearing the uniform. So I went through a lot of trials and tribulations going through the academy. Absolutely. And it, it is like military boot camp, and they are trying to also get rid of the folks who may have an attitude that they may, that may be uh, injurious to the, uh, to the um, uh, trooper uh, history, correct? This is true. Yes, and you you were a survivor of that uh, very difficult training period, which I, I think is commendable not only to you but also to the state troopers uh, for for you know making it not that easy to become a, a state trooper. It's a very difficult uh, career at this juncture in our history. You have in the many pa- passages, many uh, chapters that you've written, uh, you have uh, titles such as uh, Federal Training Academy. What was that and what did that entail? Sure. I was lucky enough to be selected to go to the FBI National Academy, which is probably the most prestigious academy that you can go to because it entails uh, individuals coming from their selected departments. And in our case, we had 38 countries represented in my class, the 214th session. Wow. Of the stories that you retell in your book, uh, I'm sure there are some things that may shock the reader. What did you divulge as um, uh, as a share of those stories? Well, the one thing that stands out in my mind, and this was early on, I did not know the history of the New Jersey State Police dating back to 1921. 
And as such, I, I found out when I got there that only a select group of individuals were allowed into the academy. And it wasn't until 1961, if I'm not mistaken, was the first African-American allowed to join the state police. Wow. The first Hispanic was allowed to join in 1967, and the first female, I think it was 1975. Incredible. Incredible. Yes. And, and would you call your story that of a whistleblower, or were just some of the stories that you recounted uh, falling into that category? Well, technically, um, yes, I would be considered a whistleblower, but I would like to say that I'm a truth teller because I think that it needed to be told the true story of what was going on, regardless of whether or not I was going to, um, I guess, retire with my 25 years or be made to leave the state police prior to, I could not just stand around and not say anything about the things that I saw. And and was there more than just discrimination that you uh, you have recounted in your book? Because I, I know that it was prevalent maybe back in the 60s, 70s, and maybe even early 80s uh, when, when uh, you became a part of that uh, institution. Uh, was there more than that that you have uh, shared? Yes. Discrimination was a part of it, but I think that the major part was the internal corruption with regard to how the unit that I was in the EEO slash AA unit, which is the Equal Employment Opportunity slash Affirmative Action unit, how they conducted business regarding their investigations. What I saw was a pattern in practice of higher-ranking males, primarily being afforded special dispensation mm -hmm. with regard to how punishment was meted out to them when they were found guilty of violating the policy. And they'd basically boot the ball, kick it down the road if they were getting near retirement, I understand. Absolutely. They would allow them to retire prior to starting some of the investigations. And some of these wow. investigations took as long as two to three years to complete. Hmm. We're finding that uh, that's probably prevalent in any business, but also uh, especially in government-related services, we're finding that that seems to be a common practice. Uh, uh, did you find that to be the case? Well, I said in the beginning that I was happy to be a state trooper for 18 years, so I saw none of this. And it wasn't until I transferred to our division, which is in central Jersey, that I find that, yes, it was commonplace. Hmm. Of your time as a trooper, yes. there was also many opportunities for exciting and positive uh, things, too. Did you share those in your book? Yes. One of the things that I will always remember was when I was assigned to the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force, and that was from 1999 to 2002. And I was a part of the investigative team which investigated the 9-11 tragedy. Mm. Wow. And and that's still a very um, raw nerve for many in New Jersey and New York, especially uh, because of the proximity of uh, of the, the happening of 9-11. My wife was in New York City the day prior to uh, working and uh, got out on the last airplane prior to 9-11. So even in our, you know, distant relationships, we had some connections to the events of 9-11. Very, very difficult time. You have uh, survived as uh, as a trooper, and uh, certainly yes. commend you for your for your your services to the country and Thank to you. the state. You look back on that really with mixed emotions, but mostly with pride. Yes, with pride, most definitely. There were some bumps in the road, but overall, I am very proud to be a New Jersey State Trooper, to have donned the uniform, and to have worked with many professional men and women throughout my 25-year career. It is an outstanding organization. It was just that I ran into a few individuals who were corrupted with their rank. Absolutely happens in, in many businesses and in uh, many uh, people of, uh, of responsibility. In reading this book, what is the listener going to, or the, the reader going to take away from this, do you think? Well, I have to preface it with this. I wrote this book primarily for my students. In the book, I talk about some traumatic things that happened to me 
during my youth and what it took for me to become a state trooper. One of the things that I wanted to point out was that I was, I was a volunteer for uh, the Bowery Fund, which is part of Camp Happy Times. And in there, I was able to, I guess, learn how to feel for others who were inflicted with certain diseases that I probably might not have experienced, but it allowed me to um, show them that, well, for them, excuse me, for them to show me, you know, how to live life, even though you're not guaranteed tomorrow. So for my readers, which are primarily my students, but also for those in law enforcement or who want to get involved in the criminal justice field, I wanted them to know that it is a difficult profession to be a part of. It is a predominantly male profession with individuals who have type A personalities, and they must learn this from the beginning and try to navigate the system as a whole. Also, for those who find themselves in a similar situation as me, it was a guide on how to try to navigate through the internal process. So for me, I had to document, document, document everything that happened to me, not knowing that I was going to file a civil lawsuit, but just in case I did, I knew that I had the documents to back up what it was that I was reporting on. That's incredible. Also, from your early childhood, you had an absentee father. Is that also part of your story? A- absolutely. Um, coming from a single parent with four, uh, three other siblings, it was difficult growing up in an inner city. But this is to show others, like myself, that it can be done. Well, it's commendable, and the the story is still ongoing because you've taken education as your second career and uh, being an author. How long did it take, sir, to, to complete this book? Well, this book was actually my master's thesis for a university that I graduated from here in New Jersey. What I did was I took out all the research part of it, and then I made it into a story. So mm-hmm. to answer your question... This has been a labor of love for approximately nine years. Amazing. Amazing. Now, Chapter 46 is titled The Final Judgment. What does that entail? Yes. Final Judgment is basically what happened at the end. After initially filing my lawsuit back in 2004-2005, going through the entire judicial process from the trial court, appellate court, back to trial, up to appellate, and then ultimately to the Supreme Court. The judges at the Supreme Court saw what the state of New Jersey and the New Jersey State Police did to me and then found in my favor. I had a chance to go back to court after winning a monetary sum and fight them again, but I told my attorney that this was never about money and that I wanted to settle this to put it behind me. So ultimately... The Supreme Court sided with me, and how I'm going to be viewed in the future, only time will tell, but I think that I stood up when I needed to stand up, and I am happy with the decisions that I've made in my life and in my career. You've done a wonderful job on this book. Again, it's a fairly easy read. Uh, it's not complicated. It is all, all 299 pages or so. has a lot of uh, information that would be valuable to a reader, to someone who's curious about law enforcement, and also anyone who is uh, wanting to enter the field. The title of, again, title of which, again, is Crossroads, subtitled Conflicted Journey of a New Jersey State Trooper. And my guest from New Jersey has been Dr. Vincent Lucas Martin, and that's how you'll find that book under that title, Crossroads. Sir, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? You can get a copy at xlibre.com, amazon.com, and barnesandnoble.com. And uh, have you started a website yet, or is uh, one under, underway? Yes, it's, it's Crossroads, Conflicted Journey of a New Jersey State, State Trooper.com. Fabulous. Well, sir, uh, congratulations on completing this, and thank you for your service and for sharing this uh, important story, one that readers will find engaging and also uh, intriguing at the same time. Thank you for sharing that today, and thank you for joining me on today's program. Thank you very much. My pleasure. For Ex Libras on Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libras returns after these short messages. 
Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on AstronetRadio.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book's title, The King's Assassin, has been written by my author who joins me from near Wichita, Kansas, author Ed Cannon. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. How would you describe your book? It looks like a fantasy, you know, Knights of the Round Table kind of a book. How would you describe it? It's fantasy, dragons, magic, uh, with a mystery, a murder mystery tied in. Um, we don't know who did it, and we, we partially resolve it in, in the first book, but there's more in the, in the second that's uh, at the publisher now. Ah. So. And and this book really got started while you were a college student and bored with one of your classes, I, if, uh, if I am understanding the history. Yes, I started it in college a, a very long time ago, it seems like. And it seemed like a good way to avoid doing some Calc 2 homework that I wasn't <laughs> enjoying. And. So I started it, I passed the class, so it wasn't too much of a distraction, and then I kept dabbling with it during college, and then after college, life happened, and it sat around collecting dust for a long time. Wow. And my understanding of this uh, this book uh, deals with the Dark Ages, and it actually was written in the Dark Ages. There were electric typewriters uh, at the time you began writing this. <laughs> I started it on an electric typewriter. I converted it to an Apple IIe, and then uh, that's when it sat collecting dust. So when I decided to finish it, I had to convert it to something modern, and so I scanned it page by page and then went through all of the associated editing. FYI, dot matrix does not scan very well. Mm Mm-hmm. So it it was a lot of work just to to get something usable, and you still ended up with over four hundred fifty four pages in the first edition of this uh, of this uh, would you call it a trilogy or uh, multiple books? How would you describe the the end uh, end game in this? Right now, it's 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 heading toward a trilogy, but I'm considering writing a a, a prequel to it. Just. For my own gratification, if nothing else, mm. um, because I think it would be fun to go write the backstory on on setting setting the story up, setting the trilogy up. So I'm I'm playing with that, jotting some notes to myself here and there. Excellent. And now there are many books or series of books that are called trilogies. Maybe you could write a fourth and call it a fourthogy, or I don't know what what they what would they call a four book uh, series. <laughs> A forlogy? I, I, a quarterly? I don't know. <laughs> a quarterly? I don't know. I, I just... Yeah, that's, that's that's something to consider. Maybe you could be a groundbreaker in that area. The uh, The main character, is it Silic or Silic? Silic. Silic. S-I-L-L-I-K. And uh, he is uh, the exploit. Uh, he is the master of seven laws of magic and war and a warrior. And uh, he's the main character in The King's Assassin. Now, that title, what is the significance of the king's assassin? Well, Silic is summoned home. He, he, he mastered the seven laws of magic, and then he was the youngest son and just had enough and with his, the hazing from his older brothers. So he asked his father for permission to leave and was given, his, given a blessing. So he left for a while. And his father summons him home, and his father is engaged in a magical duel, if you will, 
And that's the last thing Selick hears from his father. Mm. So he returns home. He doesn't know what kind of reception he's going to get because of his father's dead. His brothers don't really like him. There's they're half brothers and there's a lot of friction there. So Silic just doesn't know what's going to happen. And when he gets home without really too many spoilers, he's he's it. His family has been assassinated. Mm. Each one of his brothers in turn has been crowned and then assassinated. So the king's assassin, plural apostrophe, uh, more than one assassins, uh, more than one king has been killed. Hmm. Were you always an imaginative young lad? Uh, I was, as a child, very creative because I lived alone, basically. I mean, not alone, but, uh, you know, I was an only, only the, I had the existence of an only child. My sisters were nine, ten years older than I. Uh, was that, was that your history as, as well, or, or were you just, no, uh, I, I was, I was the oldest, uh, oldest of three. And, um, but I, I, I've always had a, imagination my mom said i would come home telling stories of hunting adventures in the backyard you know where i was um hunting uh animals that are politically incorrect to kill now Uh but um i had hunting adventures and other adventures you know went to the south pole in my backyard type thing um so I've always been imaginative, but with an engineering twist to it, because I think I've I've been an engineer for a very long time, and um, so it, it's I don't know somewhat unusual to to I think to see both mm-hmm. characteristics, the engineering and the imaginative aspects of it that is that is that is a little unusual uh, were there authors that you read as a young lad maybe as a college student and even as an adult that uh, you would be honored to be compared to perhaps or you you have uh, followed their work um robert jordan wheel of time uh uh the thomas covenant series uh, by Stephen Donaldson, uh, Tolkien, and McCaffrey with the Dragon Riders of Pern, uh, the Dune series uh, by Frank Herbert. Uh, one of the Kirkus reviews, or the Kirkus review that I got, compared me to a couple of those series. Beautiful. Uh, so was very happy with with that. I read a lot of Edgar Rice Burroughs when I was a kid. Um, uh, Michael Moorcock, the Stormbringer series. So I've read a lot of the, shall we say, classic fantasy series. Yes. The the three hundred and four hundred and fifty four pages or so. Uh, how many of those pages were completed when you uh, finished? your degree in college or was it half written partially written did it have an outline uh, how would you describe what was accomplished at that uh, that point at at that point in time it was probably about 150 pages and um i did not have an outline i did not know where the story was really going and when I when I picked it up again, some of the first things I had to do was I had to straighten out my storyline. <laughs> what is chapter one today uh, did not exist when I when I left college. Uh, I began what I had in college was I think actually chapter thirteen. Oh, wow. Now, wow. So I I had a flashback where I was trying to tell things in flashback and it wasn't working and everyone who read some of the early drafts 
was confused, so I had to straighten that out. And then new story uh, just, shall we say, presented itself. Oh, I've got to tell what happened when he actually gets home rather than reflecting on it in flashback. So that did a lot of things for me, and it brought new characters in. Um, I've, I've got several strong female characters uh, to appeal to the women mm. that are um, interesting combinations of, of characters. Uh, they're strong, they're forceful, they're fiery, uh, they have unusual positions. I've got a woman as the uh, best swords person, swordswoman in the city. So she gets the sword master position. Uh, later, she becomes the war master. She gets a promotion uh, from Silic. Uh, he eventually rescues another woman that's got somewhat of a guarded past. Uh, Renee, and she'll eventually um, be a love interest of sorts. Mm. So, but um, chapter 13 was what I had started with, and I had to rewrite the entire beginning and reorganize it. The the book itself, do you feel like uh, your primary market is going to be the fantasy adventure a lover of uh, of prose, or is this a little broader appeal, perhaps, than even you you imagined? I think it, I I hope it's a little broader than what I imagined, because there is the murder mystery: who killed Silic's family? Why did they uh, kill his family? What's going on? Uh, why were his brothers killed? Who did that? Because it's obviously not going to be the same person. Mm. Uh, but they're related, obviously. So what's going on? Who's working behind the scenes? I've got uh, basically different groups of people. There, there are the magic users and the healers, and then within the healers are hidden uh, groups called the killers, and they, they're following the nine gods of darkness. Mm. So it's, I think it's a little broader than just general fantasy. I've given it to a couple other people who have never read the genre before, and they, uh, I've got them hooked. Uh, that's a good sign. Excellent sign. The, the, um, uh, the storyline itself, is it, is it one that is uh, loaded with adventure, action, or is it character-driven, do you think? Oh, I think it's probably both. There, there, there's character development, there's world building, and there's um, action. It, it starts right away when Silic uh, climbs one of the mountains to, to to get home. He sees his 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 home, and he's almost instantly attacked by somebody trying to kill him. Mm. He gets home. There's another attempt on his life. And those those events just keep coming. That somebody wants him dead too. Is there an age limit you would think, or or discretion that needs to be made in the book, or is this one that would appeal to just about anybody? Uh, the only restriction being the number of pages that are are uh, penned. I'm I'm thinking late teen on uh, that it would appeal to. I would have loved something like this uh, when I was. 13, 14, 15, that age range. Um, there, there's a little bit of blood, obviously. People are dying. There's some battle scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's really about it. Is there a moral to the story that either you purposely in implanted in the the storyline or did one just emerge that you hadn't anticipated or or is there none specifically at all there's probably um none specifically other than maybe you know try to do good 
And and because Silic is trying, he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to, uh, you know, he's thrust into a position he doesn't want. So okay, fine. If I'm there, I'm going to do the best job I can. Good words, absolutely. And, oh, Ed, you're working on the the second and third, maybe fourth book. Do you have working titles for those yet? Well, the King's Death is the second book in the series, and it follows Silic after the conclusion of the King's Assassin, and he continues to gather some allies and uh, fight the fight. He's beginning to understand the bigger picture. It's at the publisher now. I'm working on The King's Despair, which will, I hope, finish the trilogy um, and culminate in The Despair of the King. Beautiful. The title of the book, again, is The King's Assassin. And the the author is Ed Cannon, who has joined me from near Wichita. Now, sir, uh, where do my listeners get a copy of this book? They uh, Even if they've never read a fantasy adventure, they uh, will want to maybe delve into the, or dig into the pages of your book. Um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Ex Libris, um, your favorite bookstore probably can order it for you. So there, there are lots of avenues that there's ebooks, there's paperback, there's hardback. <clears throat> so whatever your favorite format is, it's available. Very good. And they can also do a search under your name, Ed, E-D, Cannon with two N's. Well, actually three of them, C-A-N-N-O-N. Uh, if they do a search there, they'll find this book and the one that's in the sequel or the uh, up and coming and anything that might end up in a trilogy um, perhaps a website is uh, one under development, or have you completed it yet? There, there is one. Uh, it's it's edcannonbooks dot com. Very good. Thank you for joining me today, sir, and congratulations on the uh, positive response you're getting so far. And and hopefully we'll get to visit again and uh, do a follow up to the next in the series. Again, the title of this one: the tight the king's assassin. Author Ed Cannon. Thank you, sir. Thank you. My pleasure for Ex Libris on Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Mm-hmm.